Let's pray. Lord, as your word goes forward this morning, may your spirit bring it to life. May he transform our hearts and our minds. May he apply it, and may he bring life. We ask this, Lord, in confidence, knowing that you have spoken to us and continue to speak to us through your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What does it even mean uh, to be a human? That's not a small question, and I would posit to you that how you answer that question will determine a lot of how your life goes. Are humans just an accidental bag of atoms that have somehow randomly assembled themselves with no meaning, purpose, or ultimate destination? You're here for a little bit, but then poof, those atoms will rearrange into dirt and worms and other things. Might as well just soak up life as much as you can now, if that's the case. For others, even though they view the universe as just a random result of a purposeless explosion, they still say, well, you can still have meaning, and you can have that meaning by making it for yourself. Right? This, this universe has no inherent purpose or meaning, it just kind of happened, but as a human at the top of the evolutionary chain, you can at least make your own meaning. And as appealing as that lie is, it still gnaws away at us because we, we want more than that. We know that if meaning is just purely made by myself, whatever I make for myself when I die goes with me. That meaning just ends. It ends in the same destination as the first option. And so though it may be more appealing, the reality of the matter is is total despair is far more honest of a way to live if this world is just purely accidental. So what is man? Is he a highly evolved monkey with no ultimate purpose? Is he a random sack of DNA? Or is he someone who lives in a cold universe that has to make his own meaning? Or is he someone else entirely? And the truth of the matter is, is that as we look out at one another, you see kind of a mixed, mixed bag of options. We can see the, the absolute wonder of humanity. You see the things that man makes, things from smartphones to the Mona Lisa to the pyramids of Egypt. You see the grandeur of man. You see that unlike anything else in creation, he's different. We can't really put our finger on that difference, but he exercises dominion and he is drove to create things. He loves meaning. He loves purpose. He loves beauty. What do those words even mean? Well, again, depends on where you start. But also, when you look out at man, you see the horrors. You see the evil that man often does, especially to his fellow man. Glimpses of both light and darkness, whether it be things like Hitler or Stalin or the wretchedness of communism or the butchery of our children within the womb or the butchery of our children within affirming doctor's offices for money. The depths of man's evil knows no bounds. Man is both bound up with this inherent goodness in that he is made in God's image, but he's also a fallen person. So who is man? Is he an angel or is he a beast? And the Bible's answer is this. Man is created in God's image. In all the goodness you find within humanity, his gifts, his abilities, and his righteous roles, all of them reflect the goodness of God. Man who was created good, he was created with worth and value. He is not some randomly assembled bag of DNA and atoms. He's not an unhappy mistake in this universe. 
This also means, though, because he is made in the image of God, he doesn't get to just determine his own meaning. God made him. God made the universe. God gets to tell you what things mean. You do not. You do not get to determine your own truth, your own meaning, your own definition of beauty, or even your own biology. God does all of that. And yet, despite the inherent worth of man and his value, the Bible also tells us that he has fallen. He is a sinner. All have sinned, and all have done so willingly. We all like to do it. The depths of man's depravity comes because he rejects his, he rejects his creator. When there is no standard but me, then I can do whatever I please to do. And that's really how many people live their lives. And that type of life has a corrosive impact. If it goes unchecked, it spreads, it intensifies, and it brings only death and suffering. And so last week, we saw Paul giving us this picture, the beginning of this picture, of how people change. And he continues that thought here today. And the issue for Christians in particular is that we have what we call the old self that Paul uses here and the new self within ourselves. It can almost seem like you are schizophrenic. That sometimes you worship God in all of His glory and splendor and you're walking the path of faith and then all of a sudden you veer off to the left straight into sin. You follow the old way of living. The new self is that one which is being renewed in the image of its maker by the work of Christ. And so Christians have a war going on within themselves and it is their job to train their hearts and their minds to grow in holiness by putting to death that which is old and bringing to life that which is new. And in Colossians 3 now, Paul is going to offer a vision of a new way to be human. And really, this new way is just an old way. It's what man was supposed to be before sin entered the world. But this is rooted in the work of Christ on the cross in our union with him. The new way is that we are to be like God has made us to be, and Christ's work guarantees that we will indeed become just that. And so this is the purpose of the entire universe. This is the purpose of your life. God is redeeming the universe. He is remaking everything, and he's remaking it according to the work and the power of Christ. And so today we're going to examine just a little bit of what this new way to be human is like and what it means for you and me. So Paul starts this in, in verse 12, and he's continuing his argument here by saying, put on the new self or the new humanity. And this comes on the heels of him describing that objective unity of his people you find in verse 11 right before this. We talked about this last week. There is no Jew or Greek in the church, no Scythian or barbarian. Those are ethnicities in the church. There's neither slave nor free because Christ is in all and Christ is all. So in an age of endless dividing us up into different identities to pit us against one another, the gospel call goes forward and says, no, everyone in the church has one primary identity, and that primary identity is Christ and Christ alone. That is the foundation of what it means to be a part of the new humanity. You are in Christ, all of you, by grace and through faith. He is your head. He is your leader. And all are now, all humanity, is now either under that first Adam, the first head of the human race, Adam, or the second Adam, the head of the new human race, Christ. 
There's no third option. You don't get to say, well, I'm, I'm between the two. No, you're either with Adam or you're with Christ. You're either in your sin or you're being remade in the image of your Creator. And so Paul elaborates on this foundation as he calls us in verse 12, chosen, chosen ones, holy and beloved. You see, you can't get very far in any of Paul's writings without him doing just this. He always starts with a foundation. This who you are. You can't really read Paul or really the New Testament and come away with a works-based view of salvation. You do not earn your salvation. Your good works could never do that. The reality is is that Christ has done certain things for you and therefore you are called to live a certain way. And so Paul describes the church as the chosen ones. The stress here is that God, He chooses His people. His people do not primarily choose Him, but He chooses them. For God so loved the world, He came and He sought His people. The world was in rebellion. The world was not seeking God. God came to seek the world through the work of His Son. He came from heaven and sought her, as the old hymn says. That is, His bride, the church. And Jesus Christ gets everything that He seeks. He doesn't fail. God chose Israel in the Old Testament. Israel didn't choose Him. God said to Abraham, Hey, why don't you leave Ur and follow Me? Abraham didn't say, Hey God, why don't you send Me somewhere? No, God reached down and said, Abraham, I'm picking you. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. God then chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. God's choice is sovereign, not ours. But none of that, and hear this really carefully, none of that in any way changes your obligation or mine to believe. None of that changes your obligation or mine to repent. None of it changes that we still are called to choose God. In some way that we don't fully comprehend, that works together. And you should note here that Paul intentionally uses the term chosen ones. And that term is loaded with theological significance because that same term is applied to Israel throughout the Old Testament. In other words, Paul is saying, you, the church, made up of believing Jews and Gentiles in Colossae, are God's chosen people. You're a new creation. This was his plan. He also says that we are holy. Holy here has more to do with being set aside unto God than it does with being morally righteous. That God has chosen us and He has taken the church and He has set her aside for a specific job. To do a certain thing. And that is to go out into the world and say Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord over all. He died for sinners and He is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And then He also says we are beloved. That God loves us. That it is His love and His perfect love And that love is directed towards His people in a very special and a unique way. That there's a way in which God loves you that He does not love the rest of the world. Now that can sometimes uh, get controversial. We say things, well, doesn't God love everyone the same? You see this on bumper stickers sometimes. God loves the whole world, no exception. Well, you're kind of taking that passage out of context, but bumper stickers tend to do that. The answer is no. God does not love the whole world in the same way. Just like 
I am called to love my neighbor, but I love my family in a very distinct and special way that I do not love not my family. We know this inherently within our own lives. God is the same way. He has a unique love for his people. He has a general love for all of his creation, and his goodness and his love in a general way fall upon everyone, but there is a special love he has for his people. The church, made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, are beloved by God in a unique way in that he has poured out his grace through his Son to make us his children. And that is the foundation of the new humanity. That's what it means to be a part of the new humanity. God has chosen us. God has loved us. And God has blessed us. And then he moves on to, all right, God has done this. Therefore, what should you and I do? He lists the fruit of what it means to be a part of this new humanity in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The marks of being in this new humanity are compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now this is not an exhaustive list. Paul writes this to a church who probably needed to hear those specific virtues, but they are still virtues here preserved for the church for all time to know that this is to mark our behavior. That as we put to death the old man and bring to life the new man, these are the things we should start to see in our lives. These are the things that God is bringing about for us. That rooted in this story, that we were one way before Christ, but now we are a new way. We are compassionate and kind because God was compassionate and kind to us first. You did not deserve salvation. But God, in His infinite mercy, has given it to you. Why should you be compassionate to people who are sometimes jerks and mean? Well, because God was compassionate to you when you had no right to it. We are to be humble because we know that without that grace from God, we would be rightly condemned. Christians of all people should know their own sin and therefore not be prideful. We are to be patient in forbearing the wrongs and trials we experience in this life because God has been exceedingly patient with us both before we were saved and after we're saved when we continue to sin. God is patient to His people. Therefore, we too should be patient. Now, being kind and compassionate should be defined by God, not by worldly standards, but compassion according to God, uh, God's standards may be viewed as harshness according to the world. As I said to you earlier today, Jesus' first words were, repent and believe. The apostles' first sermon was repent and believe. If you go out into the world today and say repent of your sins and believe, they will think you are harsh. Right? God defines compassion. God defines being kind, not the world. He moves on then in verse 13 to really the burning center, I think, of what it means to live the Christian life. And that is the idea of forgiveness. Look again at, at verse 13. Bearing with one another, he says, and if, you ha have, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul describes this as something that is essential to Christian character, and it's really success essential to any 
relationship you want to have on any level with another fallen human being. You need to be a forgiving person. Otherwise, you're going to end up a very lonely person rather quickly. And really, Paul lays out two sides here to this equation that are very closely related, but they are different. And that is the idea of forbearance and forgiveness. Now, we often confuse these two. We think forbearance is forgiveness, but forbearance is actually something distinct and different from forgiveness. Forbearance is the bearing of a burden, an offense, a slight, a sin, or an annoyance from someone else. Love covers a multitude of sins, and we are called to love one another. And there is this reality that Paul says that bearing with one another requires love. For you will have, at some point in your life, and probably right now, an offense against somebody else. And somebody's got an offense from you as well. And if you had to, every time you were offended or annoyed, if every time you had to confront someone and tell them they had to measure up to your standards, you will be a very sad, lonely, small person. That is no way to live. God, in His forbearance, does not judge our sin yet. He is patient, offering time for people to repent. We, though, often want instant results. And when relationships become a tit-for-tat, where there is no grace, they die. When communities become that way, they die. So if every time somebody slights you or annoys you, and you just want to churn it over in your mind again and again and feed bitterness, you must ask yourself this question. Who do you think you are? Do you think you have nothing annoying to anybody else? Do you have any idea how much God has forborne in your life? Do you have any idea how much those closest to you forbear in your life? Because let's be honest, many of us, myself included, are not the easiest people to be around. Some of us are quite annoying. But there must be grace. Because you have been shown more grace than you will ever show in this life. And this is especially true in family. Even more so in marriages. Few things will destroy a marriage more than if one or both party will not give the other grace or will hold up an unattainable standard that you must achieve. If you pledge before God and man that for better or for worse you will be with this man and this, or this woman, then you have to account that sometimes it'll be worse. Sometimes it'll be annoying. Even if their habits of not picking up after themselves annoy you, you should forbear it. If they chew too loudly in the morning, you should forbear it. If they sing off-key in the most annoying way, you should forbear it. Because God has done so more so for you. This is the call to forbear those slights and to show the same mercy you have been shown. A marriage that becomes about winning or exacting a pound of flesh or making my spouse do whatever it is I want is one that is sick and destined to fail. So this is a general call for the new way to be human. Forbearance. We are people of grace. We are people of truth and grace, but yes, grace. And let me step outside the family relationships for a moment here. This is where sometimes I get concerned about uh, people like me. 
Christians who align closely with my beliefs, especially about this current cultural moment, we can become graceless fault finders. I'm noticing this more and more in the reactions about the corruptions we're seeing within the church, because we are seeing them. Let's not uh, ignore that. But we can become the opposite mirror picture of those woke fault finders that where nothing is ever good enough. Right? There's always a new complaint. That should not be a mark of the church. And so when we see pastors or Christian leaders who definitely got things severely wrong in the last couple years, when there are many, but some of those have started to come back and who have started to get things right. And I've noticed an unsettling tendency that, well, that's not good enough. Who do you think you are? Who is your Savior? Right. This is a grace-based religion. Grace and truth, yes. I'm not saying by, be naive and say, oh, everything's great and nothing was ever wrong. But this is a grace-based religion. And you need it as much as they do. So Paul doesn't stop, though, at forbearance. He moves on to forgiveness. And these two terms, I think, are, as I said earlier, are often mangled and confused. So let me put it this way. Forbearance. As a Christian, forbearance is always an option and should be a general demeanor in our lives. That is, we are grace-filled people who are not perfectionists. But forgiveness exists for those wrongs that you and I cannot bear. We cannot forbear this wrong. Our ones that eat away at us, that constantly creep into our minds, especially more major offenses. Though a Christian can forbear even major offenses if he or she desires. But the key difference here is this. Forbearance requires nothing of the party who is in the wrong. And that's wholly on my side. I forbear your, your sins, your imperfections, your slights, whatever those may be. It requires nothing of the party who is in the wrong. I just simply choose to forbear it. And that means I don't stew on it, I don't hold it over their heads, I don't do any of those things. But forgiveness is different in that forgiveness is a transaction. Forgiveness requires two parties to be involved for it to be achieved. Look again at verse 13. So he says, Bear with one another, forbear with one another. But if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. If you have a complaint against someone, or someone has a complaint against you, and there is a confession of that sin, then you are called and instructed and even commanded to forgive them. How does God forgive us? Paul says, forgive as you have been forgiven by the Lord. Well, God sent His Son to seek us. Note that God initially forbeared our sins and the sins of the world and His people until the appointed time, and then He sent His Son to say, repent. So sometimes this means if you have a wrong that you've been holding on to that somebody has done to you, you need to, in a loving way, go to them and say, brother, sister, you have wronged me. And I would like to forgive you by asking that you might repent. This is the transactual nature of forgiveness. Both parties must be involved. Jesus says if your brother comes to you 70 times, 7 times and confesses his sin, you must forgive him. Jesus, for example, prayed for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him. And that should, that should cause you to pause. 
not just that he would forgive or pray to forgive those who are crucifying him, but that he didn't just say, I forgive you. Elsewhere, he does. Throughout the Gospels, when there's a sign of repentance, Jesus will say to these people, I forgive your sins. And the Pharisees are like, who are you? You can't forgive sins. But here at the cross, he doesn't do that. He prays that one day they might be forgiven. In other words, I can't forgive them yet. They're in the process of doing this evil deed. And this prayer is answered, I believe, on the day of Pentecost, where many of those who, Peter says, you crucified the Lord, repent. And they are forgiven. Forbearance is the aggrieved party bearing the offense without saying anything or confronting the person. Forgiveness requires a level of acknowledgement from the sinner. And then the victim releases any right they have over that sin debt. This is how God forgives us. He doesn't forgive us until we go and say, Hey, I need Jesus. That initial act of repentance. This is how God commands us to repent. This is how he commands us to forgive. And that we must note in verse 13. He says, you also must forgive. To be an unforgiving person is to be a sad and lonely person. But there are few things in the New Testament that Christ more harshly condemns than unforgiveness. That should jump out to you as you read the Gospels. There are a few things that Jesus warns us about more than being unwilling to forgive those who repent. He tells, he tells the story of the unforgiving servant. And this unforgiving servant is forgiven an impossible debt by his master. One that would be utterly um, impossible for him to ever repay. And what does he do? He then goes out and he finds a guy who has a minor debt against him and he says, you're going to go to jail until you can give me every last penny. And Jesus tells that parable because that is you and me when we don't forgive someone else. The sins you have have committed against God are far greater than anyone has committed against you. And that includes if somebody has done something absolutely terrible to you. And so Jesus says, if you think you are a follower of mine, but you refuse to forgive others, I have news for you, you may not be a Christian. And so if, you, if you're like, Levi, that sounds a bit harsh, I actually tone that down from the way Jesus says it. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6.15. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. So that's, what, that's what Jesus says. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. Now that is not works-based salvation, but it is this axiom that you've probably heard before that forgiven people forgive. Now that doesn't mean it comes easily. doesn't mean you don't have to work for it. doesn't mean you can't stumble at it sometimes in your life. Right? You don't have to be perfect. Jesus is perfect for you. But that you want and work towards forgiving wrongs. And that, brothers and sisters, preaches the gospel in a hate-filled world more than anything else will when people forgive one another. Paul puts a bow on all of this new way to be human by pointing to verse 14. He said, And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The thing that binds all of these virtues together is this idea of love. And I'm not talking about here 
some ill-defined Hallmark or Disney version of love, some gelatin-like form that really doesn't have any form. No, this is love as the Bible lays out love. Because, you know, no one except a hobgoblin like me can, could be, ever be against the idea of love. Right? Everybody wants to be for love. But the problem is, is no one ever wants to define it. No one wants to say, oh yeah, I'm for hate, I'm not for love, and this is why mantras like love is love are so powerful. Because who wants to say, oh no, I hate that. Well, no one wants to be labeled that kind of a monster. But we have transformed, instead of the biblical truth that God is love, we have transformed love into God. Love now defines everything else, but is never actually defined itself. It is the God of Scripture who tells us what love is. So what is it? How do we define it? Is love mere acceptance? If it is acceptance, is it acceptance of everything? Is there a limit on it? Like, do we accept the Holocaust? Do we accept those kind of actions? Well, clearly not. We can't say that love is, is acceptance. Is love merely desire? Is it, if it's just desire, what about bad desires? Are those love or are those lust? Is love being nice? Okay, if it's being nice, what is nice? How do we define nice? So take, take a modern example. A man by the name of Tony Milligan literally, literally wrote the book on this. His book is titled, this will shock you, Love. That's the title of his book. Love. And it contains this pearl of um, wisdom, as it were. This is his definition of love. As a brief summary, sexualized love, like any other kind of love, so all loves fall under this, involves seeing, wanting, and needing. That is what we like to call fake deepness right there. This is what love is. It involves seeing, wanting, and needing. I see that, I want that, I need that. That is what love is. If that is, then it is merely feelings and desired based. I want something or I want someone so much that I need him or her, and therefore that is love. The problem, of course, is, is that often shifts throughout your life. If that is what we pledge to do at marriage, then every marriage is doomed to failure. If love is reduced to desire, it oddly becomes undesirable because it's utterly selfish. I need that, I want that. So my love is all about what I need and I want. Again, this underlying assumption of love is what destroys so many marriages and relationships. I just don't love you anymore. It means you're not doing for me what I want you to do for me anymore. Well, that was never love. That was selfishness. Love in the Bible is defined by God. God is not defined or limited by love. Love flows from him and has a content to it. It is not mere desire. It is not mere acceptance. It is not merely being nice or affirming. Love is closely connected to the idea of holiness or the good in Scripture. That, that means love has a standard to it. Take, for example, the very famous love passage of 1 Corinthians 13. The ironic thing about 1 Corinthians 13, and Ardell's going to teach adult Sunday school on this this year, is that if you're paying attention to the book when it says love is patient, love is kind, you realize that what Paul's actually doing is he's rebuking the Corinthians because they're none of those things throughout the entire book. <laughs> he's basically saying, I'm going to show you a higher way to live than you're living. You're not any of these things. Start being these things. But consider these words. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. What is envy? Envy is a desire for something. 
Love, according to the Bible, is not just desire. It cannot be. That right there destroys the whole love is love mantra of our day. If you continue on in 1 Corinthians 13, it also says, love is not self-seeking. Love is not about me wanting and seeking and desiring and needing something. That's the opposite of love. Paul, in Romans 13, I think gives us a better understanding of what love is. He writes this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All right, so that could sound very hallmarky. Just owe everybody love. Just, just love everybody. Where's the definition? Well, keep reading. Paul continues. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The law is loving. Right? Often we think about the law of God and it's like, ooh, it's bad, it's nasty. No. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law in total. The law is love. Love is the law. Love does not determine what is right, but rather love is doing what is morally right to others. Love does no wrong to others. If it is wrong, follow with me here, this is really complicated. If it's wrong, it can't be love. Let that sit with you. If it's wrong, according to the Bible, it can't be love. That means the teenage boy who tells a girl in the back of the car that he loves her because he wants something, it's not really love, as the Bible would define it. David Wells explains this well. An alibi of love can never be the justification of what is unholy. There is no opposition between love and holiness. Indeed, there is only a mutually reinforcing union. Love is holiness in attitude and in action. If you want to avoid love devolving into selfishness and me getting whatever it is I want, you have to have a moral backbone to it. And that's what the Bible gives us. So here's my attempt at a better definition of love. Love is seeking the good. Love is seeking the good. The good of others. Seeking that which is good, that which is true, that which is beautiful. Love is inseparable from moral standards. The moral standards of God. In a more pithy way, love is not the right thing to do. It is doing the right thing for the right reasons. That's what love is according to Scripture. And in this way, love binds all the virtues together, Paul says. I want you to be compassionate. I want you to be forgiving. I want you to be uh, forbearing of other sins. And all of this is held together by love. Doing the right thing for the right reasons. And this is how God has loved us. It is at the heart of the Christian life. He loved us by pursuing and achieving good in us through His Son. He loved us so much that He has made us righteously good by the standards of His Son. He loved us so much that He laid down His own life for our benefit. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is the foundation of the new way to be a human. And it is that love that transforms us 
more into the image of Christ. And it is that love that is to model that our lives are to follow. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have indeed shown love to us. Even when we were undesirable, even when we were shaking our fists at you, you loved us by sending your Son to die for our sins. Lord, I ask that that message, in all its fullness and glory, would change us. That it would capture our minds and our hearts. That we would then be those who show not this weird, undefined, gelatin view of love, but a love that points to the glories of God, to the wonders of self-sacrifice, and the wonders of doing what is good in a fallen world. May that be true of your people here. It's in your name we pray. Amen.